1: Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Richard Derdarian. Derdarian earned his Ph.D. in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He worked at the National University of... Sing- Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Richard Derdarian. Derdarian earned his Ph.D. in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He worked at the National University of Singapore and California Lutheran University. We are going to be talking about his book, North Africans in Contemporary France, Becoming Visible, about the culture of French Algerians within France following the Algerian War. We are also going to talk about his new podcast called Realms of Memory, that features the insights of leading experts on how countries around the globe confront their most difficult and often traumatic histories. Thank you very much for being on the show Dr. Richard Derdarian. We are here to talk about essentially two things. First is your book North Africans in Contemporary France becoming visible, and then we are going to talk about a new and exciting podcast that you have launched that I am looking forward to very much, which I've already enjoyed the first two episodes for. But first, let's talk about your book, because it is a remarkable book, and one which I think is very important for contemporary France. Your book deals with how immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East became more visible to the French general public through popular culture in the 1970s onward, yet there were many immigrants from these places going back a generation. Can you talk about immigration patterns in French history and how so many North African and Middle Eastern people came into France?
0: First, I want to thank you for having me, Gary. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, well, you could argue on the one hand that uh, my focus is on North Africans, and you could argue that they really fit into a much older pattern of immigration or cyclical history of immigration in France going back to the 19th century. So France is a little unique in Europe, and we know France had one of the largest populations in Europe around the beginning of the 19th century. That's what fueled French armies from the time of the monarchy to Napoleon. But with Napoleon, you have this equal inheritance law that's passed, which means that most of the population, the countryside, if they want to hang on to their land, they have smaller families, So just at the point where you move into the 19th century and France industrializes, the population starts to not shrink, but grow at a much slower pace than France's neighbors. So it's still growing. But if you look to the neighboring countries, their populations in the course of the 19th century are doubling or tripling. I mean, that's the time where so many Europeans come to the U.S., So France really needs to look abroad uh, for workers, for mines, for factories, and they look to neighboring countries first, places like Belgium, then Italy. Uh, That's the first wave of immigrants. And then uh, once you move into the interwar period, they look a little further abroad, places in Eastern Europe, Poland in particular, the government starts to get involved in recruiting. And then once you get into the post-World War II period, they are trying to look into some of the same places, but circumstances have changed. The fall of the Iron Curtain makes it harder to get workers from Eastern Europe. And they have this connection to empire, uh, particularly Algeria, which is considered to be um, an extension of metropolitan France. So it wasn't the plan, but you end up with large numbers of Algerians in particular. who start to come in in the 1950s, responding to this dramatic period of, of post-World War II growth that the French call the 30 glorious years from the 50s to the 1970s. So uh, they really fit into these three waves, and every one of these waves is followed by an economic downturn. So at the end of the 19th century, uh, it's Italians that uh, become the focus of uh, xenophobia in the press, uh, hostility, right-wing parties, or uh, racially motivated violence. There are d- scores of Italians who are, are killed uh, uh, in, in southern France. You move into the interwar years, uh, you get thousands of Poles who were deported during the Great Depression. So you could argue this hostility towards North Africans when the French economy ends, uh, this, this period of the 30 years of growth ends the 1970s, it fits into this, this older, older pattern. But what's particular about North Africans and Algerians in particular is this colonial, uh, imperial uh, connection. So Algerians uh, who arrive in France, they have to contend with other factors that that really weren't the case with European immigrants, in particular. You've got a powerful colonial lobby uh, in, in Algeria that's, that's concerned. It's that's concerned that Algerian workers might get radicalized in France, that this could stir up problems in Algeria. And indeed, this happens, that the Algerian nationalist movement, with the support of the French Communist Party, begins in France uh, in the 1920s with Masali Hage and the North African star. So their efforts very early on during the interwar years to try to control the North African population. This is a particular history to this community. You know, we tend to think these are recent things, but it goes back much, much further in time. And and these control measures uh, often involve colonial administrators trying to just keep tabs on the Algerian population uh, through a whole host of, of different measures and even promoting uh, stereotypes, negative stereotypes to try to separate Algerians from the French, uh, who weren't necessarily predisposed to have these uh, negative images of, 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 uh, of Algerians. And you could argue that because they didn't have the protection of home governments, as was the case with, uh, European immigrants, they were often stuck in the, in the most, uh, the most vulnerable, most high risk, uh, most difficult types of, of, of jobs, their their housing conditions were horrendous. Uh, you had um, we don't even know how many uh, estimate you know seventy five thousand. It could have been th- three times that many uh, immigrants were living in in shanty towns outside of French um, major cities from the nineteen fifties all the way up into the nineteen seventies, and these were places that were really not any different from the favelas uh, in, in Brazil, uh, just makeshift homes, no plumbing, no electricity, yeah. um, you know, subject to fires, a maze of, 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 of mud streets that you get, get you get trapped in with, with fires. So very difficult housing conditions. And uh, once you push into the 1970s, and the economy takes a downturn during the Giscard era, then the government starts to ratchet up even more control uh, measures on on this community. So you've got uh, uh, the end to, to non-European immigration. Um, You have uh, financial incentives that are offered to, to foreigners to return home. Police uh, are given more powers to deport uh, foreigners uh, who are, convicted of misdemeanors. Uh, And at the end of the 1970s, there's actually a policy that's being formulated um, by the Giscard government to repatriate hundreds of thousands of of Algerians. So there's this context of insecurity uh, that uh, is taking shape, a long history of control uh, and and concerns that are focused uh, on on this community and lack of protections that other Europeans enjoyed And this is really the backdrop. So on the one hand, they share a common immigration history, but there are a lot of particulars that that really set North Africans and Algerians apart.
1: You describe the late 1970s and 1980s as a formative political era for immigrants, both in the positive sense that some politicians wanted to support them and the negative as there was pronounced backlash. What political parties and peoples were for immigrants who was against them and what were these programs?
0: Well within this context of the 70s where you've got uh, the Giscard government that's tightening controls, ratcheting up pressures on the immigrant community, you do have uh, you do have a variety of, of, of groups, Catholic Protestant solidarity groups that lend their support to uh, to North African worker protests. Uh, you've got North African students that are involved in trying to help mobilize immigrant workers, trade unions, humanitarian organizations. Uh, and not unlike how uh, Macron is searching for support on the left, right now you have uh, Francois Mitterrand in the lead up to the presidential elections uh, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, whose socialist party is trying to broaden their base of support on the left. So they're they're trying to tap into a lot of these uh, elements of of what's sometimes called the new left. So they lend their support to immigrant protests, to rent strikes. They promise that they're going to extend the uh, freedom of association to foreigners. And uh, associations in France were tightly controlled by the minister of the interior, if you were a foreigner. Uh, Up until the 1980s, uh, they promised to extend the the vote to foreigners in the municipal elections, and there was even talk um, of uh, of, uh, the right to difference, the droit de différence uh, in in France. That that there was a suggestion that that uh, the socialists might be in favor of moving more in the direction towards uh, a pluralistic understanding of France, towards a more of a multicultural. Uh, uh, understanding of French society away from its um, Jacobin assimilationist history. Uh, and indeed, when the socialists come to power uh, in 1981, they follow through on many of the promises. They uh, extend these equal rights of association to foreigners, they, they end the deportation of immigrant youth. They regularize uh, over 100,000 undocumented immigrants, and they channel a lot of of, of state funding towards uh, immigrant associations but what happens is the political context changes by the early 80s with uh, with the uh, rise of uh, of the National Front on this uh, on an anti-immigrant platform and the na- National Front basically takes this idea of the right to difference and uses it to make a case that, the French difference needs to be protected that what's really at risk is French culture that, uh, uh is, is, is threatened by, uh, by a large number of, of, of Muslim North Africans in France. And, and what really needs to be done to rejuvenate, restore the nation is to try to remove this population, prioritize the French. Um, a lot of rhetoric that, um, uh, sadly, um, hasn't really changed over the past uh, 20 years. So it's it's within this context that you have uh, North African youth who are mobilizing to try to react to this climate of insecurity, the rise of racial violence, and they organize several different marches on Paris to try to you know, speak out against racial violence, to try to call for a more open understanding of France. Uh, and it seems like in the early 1980s that there could be the possibility of, of a creation of a, maybe a kind of ethnic lobby in France. The first march for equality against racism, that's the picture that I used in the cover of my book. It's 100,000 people when it arrives, arrives in Paris in 1983. They're greeted by the president, Mitterrand, at the Elysee Palace. He promises to respond to a number of their key demands. But again, this political context is shifting rapidly with the rise of the national front and immigration com- quickly becomes more of a liability. And what you see is this shift uh, in rhetoric, this idea of the droit, the difference, the right to difference is quickly abandoned in favor of this new idea of a Republican model of citizenship that, uh, uh, which really suggests that the proper way to be included or integrated is the term that's used, intégration, is the is the term to be integrated into France is as an individual, not a member of a group, and through shared values and and uh, uh, and, and rights uh, and the notion of pluralism or multiculturalism gets cast as as an Anglo-Saxon kind of import, a very negative kind of understanding of something that if the French were to embrace could take them down the road to the kinds of ghettos that you see in America or the kinds of uh, um, disruptive ethnic violence that uh, occurred in places like um, Yugoslavia. On the one hand, You do have these efforts to organize in the early 1980s that seem to have some early success, but then the political context becomes less receptive. And the North Africans themselves, I argue, are really undercut by deep sentiments of distrust that in order to build a lasting movement, larger movement, they've got to rely on French allies. Uh, And that that really was part of the the larger history of of North African activism in France. They always had supporters on the left and um, second generation North Africans just couldn't agree whether they wanted to have a broader alliance-based movement or go it alone. Uh, And eventually um, the movement disintegrated in in the course of the 1980s. Uh, And that was was a major, a major factor.
1: Well, I see that even over time, the blaming of Anglo-Saxon culture as what's wrong with France hasn't changed to this day. Now, your first examination of Middle Eastern and North African people's culture is on theater. Why were local theater troops so important and how did they impact immigrant culture?
0: Uh, Well, I point out in my book that... um, there's a long history of, of, of cultural expression in the North African community. I mean, they basically bring their culture with them from, from the earliest days. North African cafes are closely connected to musicians. Uh, you've got uh, uh, newspapers uh, that are connected to uh, Masali Hajj and, and uh, North African nationalism between the wars, novelists. Uh, we're writing about the immigrant experiences, There's a long history of this, but a lot of that really focused on the plight of immigrant workers or, or concerns about the home country. And you have this generation, this first generation of, of Algerians that grow up in France who are either brought to France in the 1950s or are born there, and they don't really relate uh, to, to to these you know, traditional focus of, of, of North African culture find themselves in a context where on the one hand, French society doesn't really see them. They still look at immigration in terms of single workers earning money to send back home and eventually eventually, who plan on returning home themselves. And what they describe as the myth of return within their families, that fathers who never intended to stay in France, that their plan was to earn their money to bring their families back home didn't didn't want to recognize the fact that 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 dreamer had had become a myth that, that that return wasn't going to happen that their families were really their kids in particular had grown up in France and were rooted there so cultural expression was a way of shattering that invisibility and they sometimes refer to themselves as this invisible generation in the 1970s that sh- that would change in the 1980s it, it, theater was a way of, of conveying their reality to to local audiences uh, and, and talking about their experiences, uh, their memories. Uh, and it was something that was fairly affordable, didn't require a lot of technical support. Um, and uh, it was something that was very fluid. That was one of the appealing dimensions of it, that you had these rough scripts that changed, but a lot of it was based on improvisation. So you had participants who really could bring their own experiences to the stage uh, and no performance was really identical to the previous one. Um, so they performed again for immigrant local audiences in, in open air settings, community the- uh, centers, residence halls, festivals. And much of this was in French because not many of them really had a great command of, of, of Arabic or Berber, the two, dominant languages of, of North Africa. You had a heavy usage of an uh, s- uh, urban type of slang called the uh, Verlin, uh, which uh, uh, works by flipping the first and last syllables of, of words. So Verlin itself is is a is a flipped around version of a l'envers or reverse. Um, and this this term burr, it's used to designate this generation itself is a form of Verlin that comes from flipping around the word Arab, of, uh, Arab becomes Rabur, uh, and then that becomes Burr. So theater is one of these earliest forms of talking about the experiences of this generation that are very different from, from those of their parents. Uh, and, um, and you see all kinds of different subjects that are included. I mean, everything from uh, this climate of insecurity, the 1970s, uh, threat of being deported for a misdemeanor, the threat of racially motivated crimes, uh, this issue of tensions within North African families over you know, the fact that there was this dream of returning home and the reality that that wasn't going to happen, and then all kinds of 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 memories of of the Algerian past, the Algerian war, and how that spilled over into France. It was it was a formative experience. Uh, Many of these uh, actors took with them and and, uh, went on to to, uh, participate in all kinds of other cultural projects within the community.
1: The next cultural area you focus on is radio, particularly a station called Radio Burr. Can you explain why Radio Burr was so important and what caused it to eventually fail?
0: Well, it was important because if you look at the French airwaves all the way up into 1981, they were it was tightly controlled by the state. Uh, and you actually you only had seven legal radio stations as late as 1980. So for a population of 50 million people, that was like 25 times less than the United States. So it was important in that you had... The Mitterrand government was one of the changes, like significant changes that it ushered in. It it it, it loosened controls over the over the airways and allowed for the this explosion of private stations, radio stations, and among these stations, you had dozens of stations that were run by different minority groups. They were called uh, community, or communitarian or radio stations, radio communitaire. Um, so then they started you know broadcasting to their own communities who really didn't have a whole lot of access to their music to programming that uh, that that uh, dealt with their culture so it was just greeted with a, a huge amount of 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 enthusiasm uh, you had members of the community who were just overjoyed uh, bringing in um Everything from furniture to records to support the station. The station was also organizing uh, concerts, uh, promoting singers uh, uh, within the community, promoting singers from, from Algeria. Uh, Radio Burke claimed that it was, uh, it was the, the station that promoted a form of North African Algerian rock music called Rai. They claimed they helped popularize that. So a major kind of uh, cultural opening. Uh, Radio Burr claimed to be uh, a part of uh, in the 1980s. And and eventually, uh, as you push 10 years on, um, they uh, uh, claimed to have 100,000 listeners uh, in, in the Paris
1: area. In your discussion of Radio Burr, you talk about generational conflict. What separated the older generation born during or before the Algerian War and the younger generation that was born afterwards?
0: So this was a dimension of my work that, in all honesty, was a little depressing. Because on the one hand, I was studying this uh, blossoming of of this cultural movement that, that seemed to be happening in the seventies into the eighties. That was something that was novel and unusual in France that you had these theater companies, you had singers and novelists and and movie producers and radio stations and uh, in a country that didn't seem to have any kind of history of recognizing or supporting uh, the public expression of minority cultures. Um, And yet it was often a history that was riddled with uh, failure, uh, especially when it came to group projects. And Radio Burr, much like the associational movement, was just undercut by distrust. Uh, so as this this collective project gets underway, you move into the 1980s, uh, and it gains more of an audience. You see that you start to have concerns, a variety of different concerns, Uh, uh, concerns that maybe the station administrators might be in league with elements of the French government or elements of the Algerian government who might be trying to undercut the independence of the station. Uh, There were concerns that maybe some of the station managers might be more interested in using the station to promote their own interests, their own political agenda. Eventually, when you had Radio Burr relying for much of its history on concerts as its main source of, re- source of revenue, eventually gets into advertising. There, there were concerns that there were maybe station members who were taking kickbacks. Uh, and eventually what happens is you get a station that splinters into different factions uh, and factions are also connected to generational differences within the station. The the people who founded Radio Burr, one of the arguments was, well, these people don't look a whole like young people from the suburbs. And it was true that by the early 1980s, these founders were really people who were closer to their their 30s than they were their 20s or, or their teens, which is kind of the image of Burrs. And a lot of the people who gravitated to the station were younger people really felt like they were more representative of this generation but they were younger people who came of age at a a time where economic conditions had worsened their their professional situation was much more precarious than the founders this older generation who were often much more um, uh, uh, professionally established uh, in in careers Uh, doctors uh, uh, teachers people in banking uh, founders of radio burr really looked at the station not in terms of an occupation or a professional engagement it was something it was more of a personal militant you know cultural commitment that they did on the side it was an extra whereas a lot of the younger people who came in in the 1980s volunteered maybe ended up working at the station they saw the station as a source of identity as a stepping stone towards a career so You have this combination of sentiments of distrust that run through the station, station tends to factionalize uh, splinters uh, among different leaders, three in particular, and then these younger people gravitate to one faction or another. And what starts as this project uh, that was seen as being built by the Algerian community, brick by brick uh, for the community, ends up in court. Uh, with three different former presidents of the station, each suing each other, each claiming to be be the legitimate leader of the station. Uh, Eventually, bills go unpaid. Uh, The station goes off the air for a while when the electricity bills aren't paid. Uh, And one of the founders ends up starting up a commercial, private commercial network of stations in the south of France called Bur fm In the end, you have Radio Burr and Burr FM end up in competition for a frequency in Paris, and Burr FM wins out. Again, as a private commercial station, continues 20 20 years later to to be broadcasting on, on, on the Parisian airwaves today.
1: So, moving on, another conflict you mentioned, and hopefully this isn't too depressing for you, is between Berbers and Arabs. Where did this come from, and what impact did it have on immigrant communities?
0: And I should should mention too that one of those three radio Berber factional members actually ends up committing suicide. So just to, to add,
1: oh, to wow, add, just to add to the depression.
0: So one of the charges that that gets leveled at the station early on is that it's it's too geared towards the Berber community. It's too geared towards kabils and so this is really part of a, a, a longer older history that goes back to uh, uh, the the French um, control of North Africa, where you have this original population, Berber population in Algeria and Morocco, and you had colonial administrators who felt like this population was only superficially converted to Islam, and they felt like they were closer in culture uh, to Europeans, and there were some efforts to try to promote European culture. In these regions, in in Algerian area, of of, of Kabylia, mountainous region to the east of Algiers, they really promoted French culture. Um, uh, Kabyles were were overrepresented in French teacher training schools in Algeria, and they even favored Berbers uh, when it came to immigration to France. So they were they were overrepresented um, uh, when it came to the the, the the makeup of the of the Algerian population. I mean, it was legitimate to see the station as maybe being geared towards this particular population that was the background. Plus also, Radio Burr gets off the ground just a, a year or so after you have this uh, Kabil uh, this uprising in Algeria by by Kabils, because Algeria itself, after independence, had gone in the direction of promoting uh an Arabic Muslim culture as as the unitary culture of the nation. So they themselves kind of didn't extend a whole lot of recognition to, to Berber culture. Um, and there was just, the first of of a number of incidents that that happened in the early 1980s and Radio Bird gets started right after that. And it was true that Radio Bird did, did try to support a lot of, um, uh, musicians uh, who, who came from uh, berber musicians who came from uh, uh, from algeria and so the argument was that the station was supposed to be balanced in its programming and the music that it aired uh, supposed to have an equal percentage of, of berber and french uh, and that it, it was much more slanted towards the towards the berber community and i, I got a mix of different reactions to that but a number of people felt so strongly about this that they um, decided to, to leave the station uh, because of it.
1: One final conflict that I want to bring up is with Algeria itself. How did events in Algeria impact immigrants and their children within France?
0: So this is, um, you know, it's the 60th anniversary of the end of the Algerian war. Right? And if you can plug into French television now, like I've been doing, I mean, just some fantastic documentaries that, that are on the air. So I recently watched one by historian um, historian Benjamin Stora helped produce. He was one of the leading historians on on, uh, on French Algeria. Um, and he does address in part uh, how the, the war is connected to France. I mean, you had hundreds of thousands of Algerians living in France, earning money in France, and they were key supporters of, of the Algerian liberation movement uh, which it's again had a, had a history that went back to uh, to, to the interwar period to Masali Hajj, the North African star there were actually two different Algerian independence movements and they really fought it out in a bloody conflict dur- during the Algerian war and a lot of which you know unfolded uh, in, in the places where these these bidonville these shanty towns where this first gener- generation immigrant youth were, were growing up, and eventually it was the FLN, the, the National Liberation Front, that uh, came out on top and was able to tap into the resources of, of the immigrant community. So you have a lot of, of, of fighting and violence and efforts by the French police to kind of control uh, this flow of funds uh, from from uh, the immigrant immigrant community to uh, to the fln and one of the ways they do this is by imposing a curfew uh, and uh so you have the paris uh, uh police chief a uh, uh, guy by the name of uh, maurice papon who's got a really dark history going back to um, you know, facilitating the, the deportation of, of jews from the vichy part of france during the war to uh overseeing torture in this area of constantine that uh he was the top administrator of during the Algerian war. But he ends up being the head uh, person of the Paris police and imposes this curfew to try to put a lid on, on this exchange of, 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 of funds to, to the national liberation um, movement. And uh, in order to challenge or contest the curfew, Algerian workers demonstrate. Uh, on the evening of of October 17th, 1961, and there's this brutal police crackdown, and you get an unknown number of of Algerians who are killed, many of whom are thrown into the Seine. Uh, And a lot of this is just uh, records are closed or lost. We don't really know how many people, this is one of the the episodes, uh, many episodes of the Algerian war that just gets buried more has come out recently so this is something that this first generation lives through and uh, through their cultural work there's a lot of uh, memory work that's connected to this so Radio Burr claimed that it was it was the first uh, North African uh, association group to to lay a wreath in memory of of the Algerians who died in October uh, 17th 1961 and it's it's a it's an event that comes up uh, in all kinds of different novels uh, uh, and, and uh, documentaries, um, songs uh, that are produced by uh, Algerian second gener- generation cultural actors. Um, and what you see as well uh, is uh, in many of the cultural productions by, by members of this community, there's a sense that uh, there's a direct connection between racial violence in the French Present and this unresolved uh, Algerian past. Um, so uh, time and again, uh, you've got references to this. So there's a novel, for example, on Point Kilometrique 190, uh, uh, Kilometric Point 190, which is like the the, the spot along a train route where uh, a North African by the name of Habib Grimsey was thrown out the window of moving train to his death by French Foreign Legion recruits. Uh, a real-life event that gets integrated into this novel by the second-generation writer, and it's a story that kind of flashes back and forth between the violence of the Algerian War and the murder of Habib Grimsey. And you see this again. It was a one of the most famous uh, established um, writers and movie producers that come out of the uh, Algerian community, second-generation Algerian, a guy by the name of Medi-Sharef. Um, his second novel is called Arquis de Marion. The, the Harkis were the Algerians who, were, who supported the French military during the Algerian War and who were just left behind and, and slaughtered at the end of the war. And uh, fortunate thousands that made it to France were stuck in camps uh, seen as traitors by members of the Algerian community. But in this particular novel, it starts off with the the son of a harky who is the victim of a racially motivated murder, motivated murder, and then you get this as the lead into the story of how his father, decades earlier, uh, was uh, murdered at the end of the end of the war, Algerian war, as a harky. So I argue that you know there's a claim that ethnic minority memory uh, could present the danger of being a divisive force of, of further splintering uh, French society. But when you look at the, the, the cultural work, uh, the memory uh, the memories that are conveyed through uh, second generation North African cultural work, often you find a, a willingness to address um, events and histories that haven't been sufficiently worked through on either side of the Atlantic. I mean this event, October 17, 1961, it's not really even talked about in Algeria because they want to pretend that Algerian independence movement was homegrown. They, they want to forget the, the, the connection to, to the North African immigrant, uh, immigrant community. So it's kind of a double kind of forgetting that happens uh, on the French and the Algerian side.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazini cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash French History 50 and use the code French History 50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is Factor slash French History 50, and use the code French History 50. Sign up today, your stomach will thank you. Drawing on Viviorca, you claim that many French yearn for an imagined past where integration was successful. Can you point out what this past was and why it does not hold up to scrutiny?
0: So I mentioned earlier that you have this period during the 1970s, and then when the Mitterrand Socialist government comes to power in the early 1980s, there's this brief flirtation with this notion of pluralism, multiculturalism, under this label, le droit de différence, uh, and that quickly disintegrates with the rise of the national national front on this anti immigrant platform that uses this notion of difference to take a stand uh, in defense of french culture in response to this you have this articulation of this republican model of citizenship so there may have been a long tradition of of jacobin assimilation in france and uh, an aversion to to group identities but there wasn't ever really a particular model of, of citizenship that gets articulated. And this is what happens in the course of you know, the middle part of the 1980s, particularly when they're debating changes that are proposed to the French uh, nationality code. So they articulate this idea that this, there's something uh, unique to France, this Republican model of, of individual integrations different from the, the American British Anglo-Saxon model of, of of, of promoting group allegiances, group identities, uh, That's seen as something that's uh, that that's uh, you know, goes in the dangerous direction of uh, balkanizing, potentially balkanizing, ghettoizing France, uh, and and some of this this notion of this republican model is is based on you know, imagine past that this is what what you're really doing is returning to a success story of the Third Republic that had successfully um, integrated previous waves of immigration. And again, it's, 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 a, it's a notion that doesn't hold up to serious scrutiny in that, as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that there was a, always a lot of backlash towards, uh, towards immigrants with, with, with every economic downturn at the end of the 19th century, uh, violence uh, that targeted uh, Italians uh, into war years efforts to deport thousands of poles, and, and this argument that they were at the time seen as too culturally different, uh, to integrate. Plus France has never really been the colorblind society that, uh, that it, it claims to be. Uh, there was always a, an effort, uh, especially during the third Republic to try to accommodate, uh, and work through differences. I mean, when, uh, um, Alsace-Lorraine returns to France um, after the end of the First World War. There are accommodations made to the to uh, uh, to the Protestant and Catholic uh, uh, um, communities that you know have nothing to do with with uh, this core Republican value of laïcité, of the separation of, of, of church and state. Um, so. Um, It is a kind of uh, uh, return to an imagined past, an idea that uh, if things aren't working in the present, we need to try to go back to uh, an emphasis on what worked in the past, and particularly uh, uh, an emphasis on French secularism and and, and an individual approach to inclusion of new members into French society.
1: So one final question about the book. You talk about print... Art exhibitions, plays, radio, and television. Now your book was published a little less than 20 years ago. If it had been written today, it would have to include the internet. Do you know how this has impacted North Africans in France today, and in what ways?
0: Clearly it's a different universe. Um, Social media just didn't exist. I mean, even the pod, oh, podcasts have only been around for maybe a little over 10 years. But uh, you know, if you look at uh, a station like Burr FM, I mentioned earlier, clearly they're, they're tapping into social media now to promote um, what the station is doing. They have 17,000 Instagram followers, 216,000 YouTube sub- subscribers. So social media is an extension of what of, of the efforts of the station to try to to try to reach uh, its 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 target audience and uh, um, and a lot of the memory work now uh, uh, you can find this uh, in, in social media so I you mean know, I mentioned these marches that took place uh, in the in the early 1980s In these marches you often had um, people who would were carrying pictures of, of, of Algerian youth who were murdered and visiting the places like the place where Habib Grimzy was thrown off the train. So there was a lot of memory work that was a part of these marches and now you can you can post this on Instagram. So you can you know if you look at hashtag 17 October 1961 you can see a lot of images of of efforts to uh, to 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 mobilize to create a greater awareness. I should mention too that there's still a lot of work to do on this. Um, Macron was the, the first, the first president, um, just back in January, to to acknowledge the uh, injustice of, of, of what happened uh, in, in October 1961. Um, um, and then you have th- certain things that carry over across the Atlantic. Uh, so, uh, following the murder of George Floyd, uh, um, their efforts to uh, to show solidarity, and you've got. Uh, thousands of people who, who demonstrate uh, in, in France. And, and on some occasions, these demonstrations are connected to uh, minorities who have been murdered uh, by the police in France. And uh, there's an effort to mobilize uh, uh, demonstrators by using social media. Um, so uh, definitely plays, plays a role in uh trying to reach out to communities uh trying to mobilize against uh, against uh, racism racially motivated violence or police injustice and uh uh and uh, it, it's it's a way of digitally remembering the past
1: so now moving from your book to your podcast you are launching what seems like a truly fascinating podcast called Realms of Memory, whose first two episodes are currently out as of this recording. Can you explain what the podcast is all about?
0: A lot of what I'm focusing on uh, is uh, really what's in the news right now. Uh, it's it's uh, something that we're living. There's a great article that came out today in the New York Times on uh, how... Uh, uh, something like 400 Confederate statues have been uh, have been dismantled, removed, uh, just over the past few years. Uh, the article featured this one company that has just earned thousands of dollars in federal contracts. Uh, basically, a lot of a lot of other contractors are, are afraid to go anywhere near this because it's such an explosive issue. And this particular contractor that was removing a lot of the monuments in, in, in Richmond, Virginia, in particular, Um, I was going to work with, with a gun and a bulletproof (laughs) vest to to protect themselves. A lot of this is is in the news, whether it's the, it's the toppling and removal of Confederate statues, whether it's all the controversy surrounding uh, how we remember and talk about the history of slavery and racism, the 1619 project or critical race theory, how that played out in the, uh, the confirmation process of Judge Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Um, but, you know, make a point uh, that this is not limited. These these struggles over difficult episodes in the past, um, it's not limited to the U.S. So you can look around the world and you can see you know, the French struggling to come to terms with the memory of Algeria. Uh, you can look at Spain grappling with uh, the, the violence under Franco you could go to uh, Taiwan and look at the memory of of a million mainland Chinese who were uprooted at, at, at uh, in 1949 when the nationalists lost to the communists and they ended up ended up in Taiwan. So these stories of uh, of traumatic histories that uh, countries are struggling with are are, are all around the globe uh, and. Um, how how uh, they're addressed, how uh, they're worked through, uh, is something that I'm trying to feature in the podcast by um, by interviewing scholars that that uh, that work on these these subjects um, uh, to try to see well you know what what's being done, uh, what hasn't been done, you know what what's come out of this work.
1: The first episode is on Germany and how it, more than perhaps any country, has successfully acknowledged its shameful past and how it can act as an imperfect blueprint for the rest of the world. By contrast, your second episode is on Japan, which to this day refuses to acknowledge most of its war crimes during the Second World War. Why do you think these two countries took such a divergent path towards historical memory?
0: So I started with um, Susan Neiman's book uh, and uh, been reviewed in the New York Times, writes for the New York Times, runs a a think tank in Berlin called the Einstein Forum. Just published this book called Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, which really looks at how the Germans grappled with the, the the memory of the Holocaust, the Nazi past. Uh, and and she argues that uh, you get this country that was really an international pariah at the end of World War II and has become one of the most trusted nations on the planet uh, and uh, a leader in Europe. So you have this dramatic turnaround. And she argues that a lot of this has to do with the memory work that it, it did in the decades after the war and that Germany is one of the few countries that really... Had the courage to confront its past, and to not, uh, you know, to go to to not get stuck in seeing itself, you know, in, uh, as a victim of the war. Uh, eventually, you know, coming to take responsibility, to see itself as a perpetrator, and she argues that its 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 courage to take responsibility um, has really been a trust builder. Within Germany and between Germany uh, and, and other other states, and I think uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Germany now to uh, to take the lead uh, in uh, in reaction to what's going on uh, in uh, in, the, in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, again, your, one of your, your previous episodes, uh, um, uh, was Meg Meg Brown, uh, was talking about how. You know, There was no desire to see Germany rearm in the 1950s. So this is like dramatically, a dramatic change. Now there's a a looking to Germany to take the lead. But what Susan Neiman argues is that this took a long time. So if we're going to learn from the Germans, one of the lessons we have to to learn is that it wasn't easy. It took decades and there was a lot of pushback to it. Uh, um, uh, And as late as the 1990s, she points out that even though, You know, academics were aware of a lot of topics, a lot of things that had happened during the war had published on it. There was still a a lack of recognition among ordinary Germans and and outrage. You know, know, when you when when an exhibition was organized on the role of the German military, the Wehrmacht, in the crimes that took place in Eastern Europe, ordinary Germans were shocked and outraged because, you know, they had family members who served in the German German military. Uh, And they didn't want to think that that, you know, their father or or grandfather could have been involved uh, in in that. So it took a long time. There's a lot of pushback, much like there's a lot of pushback against uh, uh, efforts to uh, to question our own history uh, uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, And she argues that how this happened, again, it was over time and it You know, Germany was a nation divided between a communist East and a democratic West Germany. It really happened differently uh, in each part of Germany. It happened in more of a top-down way imposed by uh, the leadership of East Germany. uh, In many respects, it was way out in front of West Germany in a bottom-up way in West Germany. A lot of uh, private initiatives that put pressure uh, on the government to, to do more to recognize the past. But again, the end argument is that you know, if Germany can do this, eventually, if it can come around, so can other countries. Uh, um, and then if you look at Japan, uh, Japan, uh, well, I interviewed Akiko Takenaka, who has uh, published a book on um, uh, Yasukuni Shrine and how the Japanese remember the Asia-Pacific War. And Yasukuni Shrine is... Uh, kind of like Arlington National Cemetery for Japan, but not really. There's no one buried there. It's just uh, you've got a register of names that it contains a register of all of the nations war dead, at least going back to the, the middle of the 19th century. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a place that also has uh, uh, war criminals who are enshrined there from, from uh, the Asia Pacific War. Uh, so it's it's at the center of this controversy about you know how, how are the Japanese doing enough to make amends for the past? Uh, are they really dealing with this? Are they working through it? And what you see in Japan is that there's no there's no equivalent to what happens in East Germany w- with a leadership that tries to focus on on crimes of a previous regime. You know, instead you have conservative leadership in Japan, the LDP, which which uh, um, Governed Japan for most of the, the post-war period, it's actually tapping in to the memory of the war. It's making promises to try to restore Yasukuni Shrine, which you know, gets decoupled from the state after the war. Uh, it's, it's trying to use the shrine to reach out to you know, war-bereaved families to try to build a base of support. Um, and even you know, up to the present day, there's a museum on the, on the shrine grounds, uh, it's been connected to the shrine since, since its, its beginnings, called the uh, Yushukan Museum that presents this revisionist history of, of the Asia-Pacific War as really Japan taking a, a stand in defense of, of Asia. So you've got kind of the right locked into maybe more of a heroic understanding of the past and then the left in Japan that tends to look at the shrine as part of the you know, process of promoting you know, fanatical nationalism, uh, representative of, of all that that was wrong with uh, with what the wartime Japanese government did. But even on the left, she points out that the left is not really questioning or looking closely at Japan's role as a, as a perpetrator. That the left uh, left has played a leading role in Japan in uh, promoting um, what are known as peace museums that so Japan has more peace museums than anywhere else in the war in the world and you know, these are these are museums that really feature all the harm that war does but it's largely harm that was done to the Japanese a lot of this a lot of these museums were were uh, founded in places that experienced bombing during the war by people who lived through the bombings, uh, either as kids or, uh, or, or or wives on the home front. Um, so it's, it's largely the story of victimization, not really questioning the responsibility of the Japanese on the war. So you have a kind of country that's still you know, locked into Heroic or victimized understandings of the past really still hasn't done a whole lot to question um, Japan's role as a, as a perpetrator, its responsibility um, for um, crimes committed during the Asia-Pacific War.
1: Finally, what painful memories do you think France has repressed and what can we look forward to in your podcast on, for future episodes?
0: I mean, the Algerian war is, is often talked about in Freudian, Freudian terms as, uh, uh, as an event that doesn't get addressed. That, uh, and it's true that if you look at uh, de Gaulle's government, the policy uh, beginning in the 1960s is extend general amnesties. Uh, and uh, I mean, you have a horrendous story of violence. Uh, uh, you know, these documentaries I mentioned that are on French TV now, I mean, they're interviewing these people who tried to assassinate de Gaulle and you're, you, you watch them and you're wondering, so, you know, why weren't these people sentenced to life in jail? Um, but there were these general amnesties that were extended to you know, military people who tried to organize coups against the government, uh, the, uh, you know, this, this secret army, uh, organization that carried out a reign of terror in Algeria. But once all is said and done, uh, the desire is to uh, forgive and forget and 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 move on. And uh, something that is not really included in the school curriculum for decades. Uh, there isn't any uh, established um, date uh, to to remember the war. Uh, there isn't. It is. It takes a long time before the Algerian War is even labeled as a war. Uh, much like you know you see in the. Russian government in Ukraine. It's like a a police intervention or a special operation. It's it's a long time before it gets labeled as the Algerian war. So clearly there's still a lot to unpack there, as I mentioned earlier, events like October 1961 or uh, a massive uh, massacre of of, of Europeans that took place uh, at the end of the war in Oran, uh, or a massacre of uh, Algerians uh, that took place uh, in 1945, and Satif, so, and there, there are uh, uprisings that uh, are, are brutally put down across the, the French Empire from the 1940s into the 1950s, and now from Algeria to Indochina, it could be, could be unpacked, so there's a, a, a lot of work to, to still be done on the French past, in particular, uh, if you're looking at these traumatic episodes.
1: Well, thank you very much for being on the show. The book is North Africans in Contemporary France Becoming Visible, and the podcast is Realms of Memory. Thank you very much, Dr. Derdarian.
0: Thanks for having me, Gary.
1: As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved,
0: we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps)